Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 257. We are continuing our storytelling series today. We retake a look at different Disney attractions, try to get a better understanding of what the story is that's being told to us through the attraction so that the next time we ride them, we get a deeper appreciation for it. We have a better understanding of what's going on and overall just enhance our experience today. Long time coming. It's a small world. And I know some of you are already eye-rolling because the song is automatically stuck in your head for the rest of the day. I would like to say we're sorry for that, but the song is quite important. And this is a ride that we have kind of put off for a while. I'm not sure how it hasn't come up until now. If I'm being honest, when we first started fleshing out the idea of this storytelling series, It's a Small World and Haunted Mansion were like the two big ones that were at the top of my mind. And I guess that's maybe linked back to that I have this love for Mark Davis and everything that he worked on, but he's not the lead guy here that we're going to talk about, but he did play a role in it. But it's, it's interesting because there's so much more that's beneath the surface that you don't really understand. And I know it's a small world. It kind of has a bad rap. Either you love it or you hate it. But I think... Our discussion today is going to at least have you having a a greater feeling of appreciation for this. Oh, absolutely. This is one where no matter how you feel about the ride, learning about the history of this ride can give you that deeper love for it, which we experience a lot doing our research. And as we talk through this, here's what I want you to think about. This was absolutely lightning in a bottle. The way that this attraction was made will never happen again, could never happen again. It was all of the right people at the right point in their careers with the right people in charge. And a tight deadline. And a tight deadline that made this work. And to think that now it has stood the test of time for 60 years is incredible. It is. So we're excited to get into it. So we're going to go through some of these key facts first, and then we'll just jump into the history. So it debuted in 1964 at the New York New York World's Fair. We're going to talk a lot more about the World's Fair. It then debuted in Disneyland on May 28, 1966. It did undergo a major refurbishment from 2008 to 2009, and then they had a grand reopening date. So a lot of times you'll see the dates listed twice for opening on February 5th, 2009, and this was the introduction of the Disney characters. They added 29 Disney characters into their home countries throughout the ride in the Disneyland version. The total for the Disneyland version now sits at 437 characters and figures. Did you realize it was that many? Oh, absolutely not. I'm not shocked hearing that number, though, Because you have to imagine that there's just so much going on. There's so much to look at that it makes sense. 
the one thing I am just super jealous of are those Disney characters. I mean, that's got to be, I hate to say it, the coolest part of the ride, honestly. Oh, I don't know if I'd say coolest part. It's the most unique to us just because we don't have it in Magic Kingdom. Okay, that's fair. The slogan for this one in Disneyland is the happiest cruise that ever sailed around the world. The reason why I mentioned that is that some of these different versions in the different parks actually have different slogans attached to them. Similar to how we talked about Disneyland is the happiest place on earth and the Magic Kingdom is, or Walt Disney World is the The most most magical magical place on earth slash where dreams come true. So there's a little bit of distinguishment that goes on between them. But they're all similar. Yep. Magic Kingdom version was an opening day attraction on October 1st, 1971. So it turns 50 later this year. It has 472 figures, 35 more than Disneyland. But of course, none of them are Disney characters. Womp womp. The slogan for the Magic Kingdom version is the happiest cruise that ever sailed the seven seas. Very fitting. I mean, considering it's like the Seven Seas Lagoon and everything, I probably prefer the Disneyland slogan because I think it fits better with the ride, but I can appreciate the tie-in. couple more versions we have to talk about. Tokyo Disneyland was an opening day attraction on April 15th, 1983. It has had two slogans throughout its life. It opened with a different one says, welcomes you to the magic kingdom of all the world's children. That is a mouthful. That ran until 2013, and then they changed it to the Disneyland version one, happiest cruise that ever sailed around the world. So that first slogan that was terrible lasted 30 years before someone was like, okay, we can't do this anymore. Correct. Oof. And the Tokyo version is almost identical to the Magic Kingdom version, except it does have the Disney characters. So it's kind of a hodgepodge between the Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom version. So do you think that, because that happened due to a refurb, do you think Disney World will ever get those Disney characters? I mean, honestly, there's no reason why we shouldn't have them, right? I mean, it's not like they're protecting the integrity of the ride because it's not the original. So why wouldn't you? I don't know why they haven't done it in Magic Kingdom yet. It honestly doesn't make much sense. It's probably budgetary reasons, if I had to guess, but... You would think it's inevitable at some point we will get them in Magic Kingdom. It just makes sense. I mean, I would hope so. It was perceived. We're not necessarily going to talk about this later. It was it received a lot of backlash when it first got put into Disneyland. But I think over time now it's pretty much accepted. There's probably still some people who don't like it. But I think whole and whole, if you think about the goal of the attraction, and now this is getting deeper into our discussion. (laughs) But I think that perfectly illustrates the characters that we know and love from the movies. It's showing that they're just like these other kids of the world. That they come from different places and have different backgrounds. Correct. Okay. Disneyland Paris was an opening day attraction in 1992. It has the same slogan, the happiest cruise that ever sailed around the world. And this version is the most different compared to all of the other versions in the park. So instead of moving into different rooms, it is one giant room altogether. And they use arches to distinguish between the different areas and countries and regions that you're going to. I don't know if I would like that. Like, can you, 
see what's coming up or is it arched enough to where it still feels like a different room? That's what I want to know. I've never watched a ride through of the Disneyland Paris version. Because I think part of the, you know, the, I don't know if magic is the right word, but part of the appeal is that, you know, unless you've just written Small World a million times and you have memorized what's going to come next, like you don't necessarily know where you're going to go next or what you're going to see or who will be represented. And that's a fun part of the ride is like the element of surprise. In Paris, they also use a different soundtrack by John Debney, which was a version that they used in Disneyland for about 10 years in the 90s and up until the 2000s. Um, before Disneyland switched back to the St. Charles Boys Choir version that we hear in all the other parks. I never knew that. I could see that being something that people would push back on more so than the characters. At least that's what I would think. And then in Hong Kong, Disneyland, it opened in 2008. It was not an opening day attraction. So the only place besides Disneyland where it was not an opening day attraction And it has two slogans that are simultaneous. It's not like Tokyo where one was archived. It's the happiest cruise that ever sailed. And they don't say around the world. So it stops there. The happiest cruise that ever sailed. And discover a world of laughter. What do you think? I'm I'm trying to mull that over. Discover a world of laughter. I, I mean, it goes with a song. If nothing else, but I don't think that that embodies the ride necessarily. So I would, I'd give that like a five. It's the most similar to the Disneyland version, but they have the most Disney characters of any versions. They have 38 Disney characters. Okay. So Shanghai, if you're keeping count, Shanghai is the only one that does not have an It's a Small World attraction. And there's no plans to ever put it in there. I don't, maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe it's just it's been played out. But I could see that. I mean, if every other park has one, and if they are trying to make each park a different experience, then there's really no need to put one in there. So we are going to focus on the Disneyland version because, honestly, it's the best version. And it's the original version. There's no replica that can really do it justice looking at you, Magic Kingdom. <laughs> It's just not the same experience. So if you were one of those people that you're like us for a long time, the Magic Kingdom version was the only one that we ever went on. I urge you to keep listening if you press play in the first part. Secondly, when you make the pilgrimage to Disneyland, you have to ride this. And you have to ride it during the day. You have to ride it during night. You have to go twice, actually, because you have to ride it during Christmas. And normal times. Although we can't even speak to that. We haven't even gotten to do that. Someday we will. But it is absolutely mind-blowing how much of a better experience it is. A lot of these duplicate attractions, I can entertain the idea of which one's better. You know, with Splash and with Big Thunder and Space. You can have a discussion there. There's no discussion here. Disneyland has the best version. And a lot of it has to do with the facade. And we're going to talk about that later on. But it's, it's, I just urge you that if you're basing your judgment off the Magic Kingdom version, just hold until you go to the Disneyland side. Yes, save all judgment 
as far as the look and the overall experience, because I do have to agree with Brendan. So this is one of those attractions where understanding the history plays a huge role in understanding the context of how this attraction was built and the story that they have been telling us for 60 years. Well, because what's so interesting about this ride is how it was created and why it was created. You know, it was not created specifically for Disneyland. I mean, in a way, they always knew that it would end up in Disneyland. But this attraction, like Brendan mentioned at the beginning, was created for the World's Fair, the 1964-1965 World's Fair. And specifically, it was created to be part of the Pepsi-Cola slash UNICEF pavilion. Which is interesting to hear Pepsi and Disney working together. It's so synonymous now that you want a soft drink in Disney, it is Coca-Cola. But that hasn't always been the case. Yeah, no, I guess I never even thought about that, honestly. But that is a good point, Brendan. So UNICEF, if you're not familiar with what that is, it is the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund. So it's a it's a long title, but basically they are responsible for providing humanitarian and developmental aid to the most disadvantaged children and adolescents throughout the world. So it's a great charity. It's a great organization. And Pepsi-Cola, you know, partnered with them to sponsor this, you know, this attraction to help benefit them and to bring awareness to them. So in February of 1963, they approached WED to see if they would be interesting, interested in creating something. And at this time, if you know anything about the World's Fair, you know that WED was already involved in creating three other attractions. Carousel of Progress being one of them. And the Mr. Lincoln. And then the third was uh, Circle Vision with Kodak. So they had already had their hands full. They thought that they were maxed out. And Joe Fowler, who is who they approached, turned it down. He said, nope, we can't do it. Not enough time. Eventually, word got around to Walt that they were approached to do it. And he overruled the decision. And that's when they started the design process to create what Walt wanted, which was a Disney-level attraction, which is why I kind of retracted my statement at the beginning, because I do think that Walt knew that if they created this, that it could come back to Disneyland and stand as an attraction. So I think, obviously, he was a businessman. That might have been in the back of his mind from the very beginning. Well, and you see this with so many attractions early on, and you even see it spill over into like the Epcot days, even beyond Walt is sponsors made the bills get paid. And it led to the funding of these things where then over time, Disney just reaps the benefits of the profits while someone else paid for a large portion of the funding. Oh, absolutely. It was definitely a cheap way for Disneyland to get some new attractions. And who wouldn't love that? So it was kind of like a two-in-one. But I do want to take a second to talk about UNICEF, since we did talk about how they were, you know, being benefited by this partnership too, because I think that has a huge impact on the finished product. Because if you think about UNICEF, where they are benefiting and they are helping all of these children throughout the world, I mean, that is directly, it correlates with the theme of the attraction. So the two were definitely created hand in hand, very purposefully which I can appreciate. 
For sure. So basically, when we think about who worked on this project, a couple of people are going to come to mind, but really it was a group effort. So about 1,500 people worked on this project, all of WED, because they were so strapped for time and they were all quite busy. But a few of the main players here are Mary Blair, Mark Davis, and Rolly Crump, just to name a few. We're going to name more. But those are the three that when we think about important Imagineers at this time, I mean, those are names that we're pretty familiar with. So let's start talking about Mark. Brendan, your favorite. He was responsible for the animation of Small World. So when you think about animation, that's kind of a, an odd term, but he was responsible for how everything was laid out, where things would be placed, how everything would move together. Um, in our Mark Davis book that we have, he even mentioned like he knows all the dances because he created all the dances. He did all the dances. And it makes sense because that's what his background is, was being an animator at heart. And for that fact as well, Mary Blair was an animator and an artist at heart as well. So it's interesting. You That's why it has so many artistic elements coming through is because it's a whole bunch of artists who worked on this. So you mentioned Mary. Mary designed the decor. She was responsible for a lot of the backgrounds, definitely the colors, because that was kind of her specialty. You have Mark's wife, Alice, who designed all the costumes. Claude Coates designed the track layout. And then Rolly Crump did all of the toys. And of course, Walt thought of the name. Kind of. We're going to get to that. But it was a group effort is what we're trying to get to. So even though we highlight some of these main people, even in the book, they all mention every single person who they talk to. They just gushed over each other, which is kind of cute. You know, no one wanted to take full credit, but instead they highlighted each other's accomplishments and what they did and how they worked together, which is, which is fun. So first we're going to talk about Alice Davis because I feel like she is one of the lesser known players here, but she had a very important role being the costume designer. So she actually was not an employee for the company but she came on as kind of like a contracted worker. And she was actually someone who Walt hired personally for a small world after um, Walt met them, Alice Davis and Mark Davis at dinner one night recently after they got married. So Walt, as soon as he found out that she was a costume designer, said, someday you are going to work for me. Of course, she thought nothing of it. Oh, he's just being friendly. This will never come to fruition. And then once It's a Small World got started, he called her and basically said, hey, you know, come in tomorrow. I want you to start working on this. She walked in. She didn't really know what she was walking into. Thought she was way over her head. But here we are. She did a great job, obviously. And she did a lot of things that I don't want to say ruffled feathers, but she did things that were not necessarily the Disney way. Like one of the stories that it talked about was she sat down with Walt, like one of those first few days and said, what's the budget? You know, how much money do I have here to work with? And as soon as she asked the question, she knew that that was not a, an appropriate question to ask because I guess Walt looked at her and was like, well, we're trying to create an attraction so that all the little girls in the world, you know, will want to play with these dolls and basically went on a, you know, 
spiel saying there is no budget. Like I have people who worry about the budget. You are not the people who worry about the budget. Mainly his brother. Yeah. (laughs) So you just go do what you need to do. And there was another instance where she had the forethought to want to put all of the costumes and all of the swatches and colors and, you know, hair, everything into a book. Basically, so that if something happened to the costume, that Joe Schmo could come in and make the costume the same way that she did. And they were just like, well, why would you do that? Why would you waste so much time putting all of this into a little book? Like they just thought if the costume gets ruined, we'll just make a new one. And she could understand that like, well, I might not always be here. So we need to write it down. Like we need to have this book. And she got a lot of pushback for it, but she did it anyway. And this is kind of why I mentioned like stories like this is why I mentioned that this is like lightning in a bottle because you had Mary Blair kind of leading the creative design of this. And she is the same way. You know, the best way I heard it put is she basically created the style guide for It's a Small World saying this is within our design parameters. This goes with the artistic theme of this attraction and this does not. So you can stay within these boundaries. And it's very interesting. You know, Mary Blair, who has kind of an up and down history with the company up to this point, comes in and tells Mark Davis, here are your boundaries. It's very interesting. And I think it's just because of her brilliance and everybody could see it along with Alice Davis and these people working alongside all of them, that they all went along with it, which I don't think anybody could have predicted that they would have. You mean no one could have predicted that like everyone would listen to them? I don't think anybody could have predicted that Mary Blair and Alice Davis basically made so many contributions to this. And our typical all-star cast of Imagineers at this time, you know, played a little bit of a different role than they did in all of the other attractions that they had worked on. This was probably... You mean they took a backseat? Correct. Okay. I'm following you now. I was just trying to get to what you were getting to. So, yes. So, Alice Davis definitely had a big role in this. And I also have to mention one of the other... One of my favorite things that I read in this Mark Davis book was a recollection from Alice when it was, they were at the World's Fair, so they all went together to go ride the ride. They wanted to experience it. They wanted to see it in its glory. And I guess Walt had gotten on the ride and he was on the boat and they were coming up to a bridge and he shouted up to Alice something like, well, why did you put pants on those can-can girls? And she said, well, you wanted it to be a family-friendly show. And he laughed. And, you know, it just showed that, like, kind of like what you said, but they trusted them, that they supported what they were doing, and, you know, that they had the reins. They got to do what they thought was best, and everyone just went with it. And a big part of this as well is the time frame that they're working in. So they only had 11 months to get this going and to get it to New York. So basically they had this show building and these Imagineers and artists were working saying, you put the building up, 
and we will fill it in. And they basically didn't have time to get things approved by Walt or to second guess anything. They basically all just kind of put their heads down and that's maybe not the correct term because there was so much collaboration going on, but they all just kind of went with their first instincts and got it out the door. I'm going to contradict that just a little bit, but I can agree for the most part with what you're saying. So we're going to talk about a few more people. Another person is Joyce Carlson, who again, wasn't an Imagineer, but she was an artist who worked on every single version of It's a Small World, dating all the way back to the World's Fair you can see her name on the Main Street windows that reads Miss Joyce Dollmaker for the World. Maybe that's why they won't put it in Shanghai. It's because she couldn't work on it. Oh, that would be touching. That would be too much. That would be a tearjerker. But what we also wanted to mention is Mary Blair. So Mary Blair is someone who came into this team a little later. So like we mentioned earlier, they were approached by the Pepsi Cola in February. Mary Blair did not come onto the scene until June, which means she only had about 10 months working on the project until the fair opened. So she came in, I mean, rather late in the game. Yeah, rather. (laughs) Well, I mean, like you said, the whole thing is sped up. So, I mean, it's not like anyone had oodles of time. But she came in way later. Walt called Mary himself after they struggled with the design for a few months. So they were well into the design process. They knew what they were doing. Kind of like you said, they were like, we're going to have a building. We're going to have a track. This is what it's going to be. But what are we going to fill it with? How are we going to make this? you know, the level that we want it to be. And according to Rolly Crump, Mark Davis was originally tasked with sketching, you know, what they thought Walt wanted and what they wanted this attraction to look like. And of course, Mark is brilliant at what he did, what he does, but it was too much. It was too sophisticated. And they said, basically, Walt took one look at it and said, so what's Mary Blair doing? (laughs) Like, he just knew that that's what he wanted, which, again, is funny because Walt never told you exactly what he wanted. You know, he let Mark try first. But I I have to wonder if in the back of his mind, he always knew that he wanted Mary Blair to work on it. I mean, you'd have to think that he was able to realize they needed a radical change to get this done. Because all of his Imagineers were trained in this very methodical way of storytelling. You know, if you think about this time period, Mark Davis and Rolly Crump specifically would have been kicking around ideas on how to get Haunted Mansion off the ground. And they paused it for the World's Fair. But in there, they're taking it room by room by room on how to do this. And you couldn't do that with It's a Small World with the time frame that they had. So it's very, it's, it's an astute observation by Walt at this time to say, we almost need an outside person who, who's not necessarily trained in attraction design to come and do this and do a clean sweep. And she had the style that of course they were looking for. So her artwork 
would have had that more childlike feeling, which is what he was going for. Whereas again, Mark Davis's artwork was just too sophisticated. So when we think about Mary Blair, like you said, she was not in attractions. Her background was in animation, but she was very well known and she was very respected for her particular style. Like you could look at, you know, a lineup of artwork and you would know which one was Mary Blair's because it was so different. Her style, particularly, she worked with backgrounds and she was a colorist. So they said like she just knew what colors would go well together, you know, maybe how to portray a certain feeling or, you know, whatever it was that they were going for. But what was interesting to me is that her style is described as being flat. Like in everything that anyone ever said about her style, they always said flat, flat, flat. So I had to think, well, what does that mean? And I mean, it is simple. And I guess the best way to think about it is just like one dimensional almost. So when she started sending in artwork to California, because she wasn't in California at the time, she was in New York, she would send them, you know, original artwork and pieces. And a lot of the time they were collages. So if you're trying to get an idea for what her style was or what flat might mean, think collages. And that's, I think, why you see a lot of shapes. And, you know, you can see that in the facade on the front as well of things stacking on top of each other. They're also using her style of artwork for the cups that they're using in Disney World right now. So if you want a good representation of it, or you can go to the contemporary and see a lot of her artwork as well. But yeah, it's interesting, and I think that probably leads to the way that they built the interior facades, basically going up and stacking things on top of each other, stacking two-dimensional in front and behind of each other to make it Mm three-dimensional, which is really cool and obviously something that we hadn't really seen before. But again, simple. So within the time constraints, very much doable compared to... You know, something that's more, like you said, Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean-esque. You know, they were not doing necessarily audio animatronics or anything like that. So she primarily worked on the attraction from her home in New York, which I thought was pretty cool. But she would have to make those trips to California for meetings. I think she spent like a two-month period there at one point where they like really needed her to be in California But most of her work, she was able to do remotely. Which is interesting because I'm sure in her mind, she's thinking like, the World's Fair is here. Yeah. You should come to (laughs) me. Like, it reminds me if you think much later in Disney history, you think of like Howard Ashman of how they basically. How dare you mention Howard? I'm sorry. I'm I'm going to start tearing up over here. Basically, they uprooted. Well, that was Beauty and the Beast, right? They uprooted everybody to go to him based on his health at that point in time. But, you know, you'd think that maybe they could have done something similar for Mary. I wonder if she was kind of perturbed to have to <laughs> go to California. To going. Possibly. And I also think, it, you know, it's obvious, but it's worth mentioning. You're in a 10-month time constraint. She's sending artwork. And by sending, you're saying she's putting it in the postal service. She's well, yeah, not there emailing are no emails, it. yeah. So I think that's just something that you can lose in the verbiage of how this is done. 
she's literally sending it. And then they're probably getting on the phone and talking about what she just sent. And they, you know, are you looking at page two? No, I'm on page three, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And well, so when we talk about that, she sent art, you know, because she was kind of like the creative leader, they took her style. So everything in a way came through her. They would do their best to replicate it exactly the way that she drew it, which was probably hard because she wasn't there to kind of give it a glance over. But for example, we mentioned that Rolly Crump designed the toys. So she would draw these toys, you know, with the colors, the eyes, everything that you would see. And Rolly would have to take that picture and turn it into the actual toy. And he said that he was very particular about trying to make sure that it was just the way that she wanted it. Like he didn't take his own artistic liberties, but she drew it. He made it kind of thing. That brings up a good point of something I wanted to talk about before we leave this section on the World's Fair. You talk about Rolly Crump and his basically his interpretations of Mary Blair's artwork. And it did translate to the toys, but that's not the only thing that he did for the World's Fair. He also worked on the outside facade and this giant sculpture that they had called the Tower of the Four Winds. And so this is one of the biggest differences between the World's Fair version and the Disneyland version. The World's Fair version did not have the big face clock and the big facade that we see now. It instead had this, the Tower of the Four Winds, and it's designed by Rolly, but it is so Mary Blair-esque, it hits you in the face. <laughs> So I just think it's so interesting that they had worked so long on this together. Well, so long. So intensively. <laughs> intensively, I guess is the better word. That he almost adopted her style in a way and was able to translate that to this outside sculpture. So I highly recommend looking up a picture of what this looks like. It was a mobile, which I didn't know what a mobile was. Maybe some of you do. But it's this giant sculpture that uses kinetic energy from the wind to make things twirl and move, you know, kind of like a weather vane. Like a, pin, like a pinwheel. Like a pinwheel type stuff. And it was supposed to represent all of the different colors of the flags of the world, which obviously is a great representation of the attraction. And it also has these abstract elements representing the uh, things of the world. So people say that there's Eiffel Tower elements in there. People say that there's Leaning Tower of Pisa elements in there. Oh, I see. Like landmarks, like yeah. well-recognizable things. Yeah. And so all of it, you know, kind of leading back into the theme, but using this Mary Blair flat style of doing it. It's really, really interesting if you think about that and I don't know if he had any direction for Mary. He's definitely attributed with building it and doing it. But it's it's really interesting to see that a lot of people, if you look at it, you'd say, oh, yeah, it's a Mary Blair piece of artwork. But it was actually Rolly doing a lot of it. Hmm. Well, I do think ultimately, you know, we mentioned like the teamwork element. I mean, that's probably, you know, one of the best I don't know, examples of that teamwork then is just like they were able to kind of put their own 
design styles aside and say, okay, this is what we're doing. You are in charge. This is what Walt wants. We're going to have to do it this way. You know, there wasn't like a fight. I don't think Mark Davis put up a fight when they were like, we're going to go a different direction. You know, you just kind of go with it. So that's a good point. I like that. Ultimately, the last little thing I'm going to say about Mary Blair is that one of the quotes I read is she actually said, this is the most interesting job I've ever had. Interesting to me stood out because I think that's quite ambiguous. She didn't say like most fun or, you know, I don't know, but just interesting. Well, I'd imagine that first ride through that they all went through, you know, building something in that short a time frame, it's probably an element of, are we going to pull this off? Like, will this make sense? There's also an overwhelming amount of relief once you do figure out that we did it. Once it's done. Oh, yeah. That's when the party happens. So I'm sure there's a lot of stress, a lot, you know, not much sleep going on, lots of pots of coffee, you know, going off at 10 p.m. for this period in time because they were obviously under a tight deadline. Other thing I wanted to just hit on here, which I think is interesting, and if anybody listens to uh, Disneyland for Designers with Mark Brickey, we listened to his episode on this. And because he's a creative, he was able to pick up on this astute observation, which I thought was really cool. If you think about from the perspective of Pepsi is the client here. And they basically got out of their way completely. They basically said, Walt Disney and Wed, go. Don't ask us. Just do it and we will be fine. And if you talk about, you know, from a business world, you have a client that doesn't happen very often. The person paying the bills at the end of the day, it basically puts all of their faith and trust into WED and to the people that Walt tapped to get this done. I think that's a, that's a part of the story that can easily be missed in that if they had had, if, if Pepsi was down their throat saying, you need to send us the proofs, you need to send us a doll for us to inspect it, they never would have got it done. You know, I never even considered that for a second. You know, I just, when I think about this, I guess because I'm not in a business mindset ever, I just think, oh, well, Disney, Disney's making this. They asked Disney to do it. And I never even thought that, you know, there is Pepsi Cola is, you know, footing the bill. They're responsible for this. This is their pavilion. Their name is on it. I don't know if it's safe to say like more than Disney, because obviously Wed did it, but yeah, that they never asked questions that we saw. They were just kind of like, okay. So talk about a dream client, you know, a silent partner, pretty much. Maybe they just knew. Maybe they knew we better not say anything or else these people are going to rip our heads off. There is another part to the story here, and I read very briefly about it in my research about that you know, the reason why Pepsi asked so late in the game is because they had other plans as well for what they were going to do with their pavilion. Like they were going to try to make something? I think, I don't know if they were going to make it themselves or they were going to work with other, you know, companies besides WED to get it done. But it was basically like Pepsi had kind of struck out as well. And so that coming to Disney was kind of, you know, like a Hail Mary. 
Ooh. So I bet they completely panicked when Joe Fowler turned them down. Yeah. And I do know there was discussion about like, that was one of the quotes that Pepsi said at the beginning is like, if anybody's going to pull this off, it is Walt Disney and his team. So it's, I mean, it's, it's really cool to think about. That's like, I keep saying it, but it is truly lightning in a bottle. Like the, the, all of the puzzle pieces that had to fall in place for this attraction to get built for the world's fair, but also to be a representation of something that we'd become an icon of Disney parks worldwide built in this short a time frame is simply unimaginable that they could pull this off. And again, I think it goes to say all these people put their egos aside. They all worked towards this genuine goal that they believed in. And I think that shows through in their work of that. They all truly believed about unity and peace and all the children in the world, you know, seeing each other as equals, I think is, is super cool. So we definitely hit on the artistic portion, you know, the visual element, all of these key players, what they contributed and how that kind of meshed together. But there is one very important thing that we have not mentioned. And honestly, this attraction, I don't want to say it's nothing without it because, I mean, there's so much that already went into this and so many talented people who worked on it. But can you imagine riding this attraction with no sound? I mean, how boring would that be? So we have to talk about the song. So to back it up just a little bit, before the song was written, the working title that Walt was using for this idea was Children of the World. Major yikes. I don't like that at all. It just doesn't have the same ring to it. It's not bad. Again, I mean, it fits with what the attraction is. So that's when, at the beginning of this, when you said that Walt was responsible for the name, that's why I say, kind of. It was his ultimate decision, but he didn't think of It's a Small World out of thin air. He adopted it from the Sherman Brothers. Touche. So, Walt tabbed the Sherman Brothers to Robert and Richard to do the song for the attraction. And so the first thing that he did is he took them to this model walkthrough that they had created and told them, and this is a quote, I need one song that can easily be translated into many languages and played as a round. And so the Sherman brothers went off, got to work, and what they responded with was, it's a small world after all. However, the version that they first came up with was not the version that we hear today. So when they originally played it for Walt, it was much slower in tempo, and it was almost a ballad of how they sang it, and it wasn't approved by Walt. So we don't- What? Yeah. I feel like Walt approves everything they do. He was looking for something much more cheerful. Well, and it's interesting, you think about uh, Spoonful of Sugar as well, is that he made them flip it to make the note go up when you say, when the sugar goes down. You know, so I think medicine Walt goes down. Medicine goes down. I think Walt just liked to challenge them a little bit because he knew that they were so great at what they did about digging a little bit deeper to find something. So 
I wasn't able to find exactly how they first played the song or like on a recording or anything. But at the 2013 D23 Expo, Richard Sherman was up on stage with Alan Menken, of all people. So talk about just the dream glory on a stage. He did start out singing It's a Small World at this much slower tempo. So we're going to play that now so you can hear it. It's a world of laughter, a world of tears. It's, it's a world of hopes and a world of fears. There's so much that we share that it's time we're away. It's a small world after all. There is just one moon and one golden sun and a smile means friendship to everyone. Though the mountains divide and the oceans are wide, it's a small world after So again, that was from 2013 D23. He was just up on stage playing this. And he didn't specifically say like this was the old slower version but it's probably you would have to think he pulled from memory kind of doing that that's how they originally presented the song i would highly suggest anybody going and listening because after this he does pick up the pace and sing it you could kind of get that at the end and alan Menken actually joins in and starts singing it's a small world with him so if you want to cry today (laughs) then that's your fuel you do have to think though maybe walt knew if it if it was that slow especially today with how you know, a lot of people see the ride. That would be nap-inducing. It was. I, I mean, I think they were a little bit off base at first. But again, it was, you know, besides Walt, maybe to a certain extent, but even more so Mary Blair, I wonder if she got to listen into it as well. Because I don't know if the Sherman Brothers really could have understood what the finished product was going to look like, probably because they didn't finish it until right before it had to ship out. So it took a lot. I think it probably took some oversight from someone of understanding this is kind of the end goal. But I also want to point out kind of where the Sherman brothers took inspiration for writing this song. So this is in 1963 when Walt would have tabbed them to do this. And the Cuban Missile Crisis was in 1962. So they're coming right off of a very scary and divisive time in American history. And they wanted to convey a message of unity and of peace, of brotherhood and of all these different things. And I mean, say what you want about the song and it's how much it gets stuck in your head. (laughs) They 100% captured that. It's one of those songs that I highly suggest reading the lyrics of it. Because it is much deeper. You can kind of hear it in that clip as well. Mm-hmm. The lyrics are much deeper than you maybe a uh, than what you hear when you're on the attraction when there's so many other things going on. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we could just gush about the Sherman Brothers because everything that they did, I feel like they just hit the nail on the head. But I do think that the song plays a big role here in the storytelling and in really getting that message across because you can look at the artwork, the dolls, the costumes, the backgrounds, and you know what's going on. You know, it's not 
a story that takes a lot of explanation. But I think the song gives it the voice to tie it together and to hit it home and to give it depth, if that makes sense. You know, to give it the little pull at your heartstrings or, you know, just like that warm, fuzzy feeling that like, yeah, world peace. You know, we can all come together and this is the message and this is the meaning kind of thing. Again, every time we mention the Sherman Brothers, we always mention the boys documentary that's on Disney+. Plus. It will leave you feeling some type of way. Uh, it's uh, it's very hard to describe because we don't want to spoil it for anybody. But I, it's a must watch. It's a must watch, but you will view the Sherman Brothers differently, not in a worse way. You there's just it's a story that is not told very often. I don't think. But I mean, I do think it gives them. You know, when you think about Disney and all the work that they did for Disney. You know, they're very much put on a pedestal because what they did is brilliant. The documentary makes them more human, if that makes sense. So all of this kind of that lays how this came to be, how this attraction. What all the pieces had (laughs) to fall in place to make this, you know, what we get to experience today. So I want to talk through some of these storytelling aspects or things that I think you should key into the next time that you write it. Now that you understand the history a little bit more, you know some of the key people who worked on this. I think that's a good foundation. And we got to start with the facade. Probably one of the most breathtaking and iconic visual aspects in all of Disneyland. They use it now for even fireworks backdrops. They light it up for Christmas. It is an absolutely beautiful and breathtaking facade. And if you think about its placement as well, it's kind of interesting that it's almost by itself. It's detached from Fantasyland quite a bit. Mm-hmm. It's not part of Mickey's Toontown. No. It's almost its own thing. And it's massive. I mean, it's a showstopper. It is meant to catch your eye. It is meant to be visually appealing. And, you know, the colors, everything about it just not only scream Mary Blair, but just scream like, look at me. So as we previously mentioned, the facade and specifically the clock was not present at the World's Fair. But same guy who worked on the one at the World's Fair, Rolly Crump, was tabbed by Walt to do this facade here at Disneyland. And so uh, he decided on the clock. Walt asked for like a, he asked for like a 20 foot clock and Rolly was like, let's make it 30 foot. (laughs) And so they purposely made it even bigger. And did you know that the clock actually has a name? I did not. Glockenspiel. Is that like the word for clock in a different language? Glockenspiel is an instrument. Ooh. A German instrument. And that's and that's what they named the clock? I believe so. Yes. Well, that's fun. And so it has changed colors quite a bit over the years, but the color palette that you do see right now is its original one. So the white with the gold leaf and then the baby, baby hints of this 
shade of blue that's just barely off of Tiffany blue. It's like a very mid-century modern color palette. Well, and this is the same color palette that Mary Blair wanted for the ending scene where everyone is together. So again, it's reflecting what's on the inside and, you know, that same color palette. And, you know, you get glimpses of it in the Magic Kingdom version. But again, that Disneyland facade sets a completely different tone for what this attraction is about. It's not hidden under anything. Any kind of little awning. Yep. You're boarding outside. It's 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 beautiful. The topiaries. The topiaries. They have are, animals. Yeah. So when we think about the story of this attraction, it is simple yet very sophisticated and very deep at the same time. And so I think the biggest thing that I would want you to walk into the ride with is that the message has stood like the ultimate test of time in its simplicity, but also its impactfulness. So we use the Imagineering Field Guide for a lot of our uh, references and research for these attractions. And they describe the theme of this attraction as the children of the world understand our commonalities and can create a harmonious future. And that's a very simple yet complex sentence. I think the biggest thing is the children of the world understand our commonalities. That is basically the epitome of Disney is that it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you look like, what language you speak. Disney is for everybody to find their inner child. Like it makes me think you see these viral videos of like the two kids meeting who speak a different language, but they're able to like create a game to play with each other, even though they don't speak the same language or, you know, all of these touching things of being able to view something through a child's eyes. And then the second half of that sentence of creating a harmonious future. It's so interesting to me that I feel like I miss that quite often. That this is showing us what the future could be if we all can identify those commonalities. But in the same way that a child would, you know, kind of like what you were saying, it's just like children just have this way of like they're not impacted by, you know, social norms or this or that or, you know, where you're from, what you look like. Like children just have like this pure outlook on everything, you know, and that's what this ride represents. Like that's what when you are on this attraction and we're about to get to this, but like you are a child, like you are being put in the middle of this. They want you to experience all of these different places and see and feel all of these commonalities just the way that these children of the world do so that you can come together. And it's interesting that a it's a production decision was made that all of these dolls will look the exact same. It's simply done because they don't have enough time to make them look different besides just painting them. Painting them, giving them hair, all of those things. But they're all... They're all identical besides that. That further hits home the theme. Is that we are all the exact same. 
And I think that's, it's crazy how that's a production decision that's made, but then that benefits the story so deeply. Yeah. I mean, because when you think about the story, you know, if you think about like the placement of the boats, you know, the boats are sunken down into the sets. You're not eye level with anything. You, they want you to have that perspective like a child, you know, think back to UNICEF. They want you to put yourself in that situation. They want you to feel a certain way, like any other Disney attraction. So no matter how big you are, no matter how old you are, you are still looking up. You know, there are things on the ceiling. There are things above you. Things are stacked and tiered and in front of and behind everything else. And it gives you that different perspective. And it's honestly the only Disney ride that I can think of where your perspective does not change no matter how old you are. Can you think of anything else? You mean like you can get the same exact experience? Yeah. You are viewing it through a child's eyes every single time that you ride. Because whether you're seven feet tall or 40 inches tall, you are looking up at everything like you're a child. Yeah. I mean, no, I think that's a fair statement. And I think, again, it was very intentional. So kind of last thing that I want to wrap this story up, then we'll have our final thoughts, are the advancements that this made in storytelling and how you can see that the groundwork that was paved here in this attraction impacted things for years to come. So one of the biggest takeaways from the World's Fair was how many of the other pavilions and exhibits had massive lines, you know, an hour, two hour waits to be able to experience anything. And you also have to remember at the World's Fair, you are paying to go into all these places. So I believe it was 95 cents for an adult and 65 cents for a child to go on It's a Small World at the World's Fair. And so there was a lot of bang for your buck to go here because It's a Small World almost never had a long line. And it was very eye-opening to Walt and the rest of the team to think this thing, this boat ride can eat a lot of people and has a lot of turnover. It's a 15-minute attraction. That is very long for Disney standards. Oh, absolutely. But it still keeps the people churning through and they feel like they're getting a good value. And so it's interesting. There's a story, and this is one of those, you don't know if it's fact or fiction, but supposedly as soon as Walt realized this, that that was a major reason why It's a Small World was doing so well, he called back to California because some of the Imagineers were working on it. Uh, working on Pirates of the Caribbean at this time. And it was originally supposed to be a walkthrough attraction. And he said, scrap it. It's a boat ride. So we can get more people through it. And we even saw the exact same thing happen when, you know, they were talking about Haunted Mansion. You know, they decided to go with the Omnimover system rather than a walkthrough Haunted Ride, you know, Haunted House. house. I was like, what's the word? I kept wanting to say mansion. They went with that. For the same reason, because pirates had such a great turnover and they were always worried about lines and how many people can we get through and what's the flow of the park going to look like. So that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, you imagine Pirates of the Caribbean would be nothing 
the same if it wasn't a boat ride. Do you think, I mean, I have to imagine that eventually they would have had to change that. I can't really imagine anything just being a walkthrough experience anymore. But it is, it's fun to think about. The other big impact I think that you can see is story through song. So let's think about who worked on this. Mark Davis, Rolly Crump. What did they go on to work on or pick up back working on right after they finished this in an attraction that has a continuous loop song that advances the story? I mean, obviously Haunted Mansion, our other love. So who knows if they would have figured out that they needed to have grim grinning ghosts without this. But I think it certainly strengthened the reason, the, the reasoning behind having a song that plays on a continuous loop and tells the story. Never ends. Never ends. Never stops. Nothing new. So I think it, it can be fair to say that because Mark Davis and Raleigh Crump were basically kind of forced to take a pause on Haunted Mansion. If you want to go back to listen to that episode, basically they were forced with this decision that they had to get this stuff done for the World's Fair. They had been kicking the tires on Haunted Mansion for so long and they couldn't agree on what they were going to do. And they couldn't get Walt's approval was the biggest thing. <laughs> he didn't like anything that they came up with. Maybe it was breaking away for a little while and working on this and then going back that led to some of those breakthroughs. Now, of course, we do know that Walt passed away shortly after this. And so there was a lot of hesitation on how to move forward with Haunted Mansion without Walt. Without his oversight. But you'd have to think that maybe they adopted some of these storytelling aspects from It's a Small World to take it over there to maybe, maybe the best attraction they've ever made. Bold statement, but I stand behind it. That's a bold statement, but honestly, I'm struggling to come up with anything that's better. So I back, I support that. So what are your final thoughts or, you know, things that you think a rider should keep in mind whenever they go on this attraction? I mean, I honestly think one of the biggest things is because there is so much to look at, you know, it can be sort of, you know, stimuli, stim, what's the word I'm looking for? Stim, mm. overstimulating. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> to look at, but I think there's so many details um, and so many things that I'm going to try to look for next time. You know, I'm going to pay closer attention to the costumes now that I know more about Alice Davis and her work and her attention to detail. Um, I'm going to look more at Mary Blair's style of artwork, you know, if you think about it, it's a small world, just like the the one dimensional, the backgrounds, the colors, and how it changes from room to room was very intentional. And then I mentioned just a little bit about like the ending scene and how she wanted it to be white. Like that was her call. That was her like lasting impact of like this is everyone coming together. She just liked the idea of having it be white. So There's conspiracy theorists that say that's heaven. No. No. <laughs> no. No, no. So I would just like to say that, you know, that's something that I feel like the next time you're on this attraction, you know, even though the song's going to be stuck in your head for at least a week. So sorry, 
you know, for playing it multiple times today. But I think there is so much to appreciate in each room. And, you know, with the dances, like I picture Mark Davis, like dancing and showing everyone, this is what it's going to look like. This is how they're going to turn together. This is, you know, he did all of that. Like someone physically had to make up that dance and what it was going to look like. And then they had to think of a costume for how it was going to look when that doll danced and just everything that went into it. You know, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. I just think it's, uh, it's so impressive to think about all of the people who worked on this. You know, you get names like the Sherman brothers and Mary Blair and Rolly Crump and Mark Davis and Alice Davis and Joyce Carlson. I think the biggest thing that just stands out is this is so authentic and so genuine of that. You can tell that they really cared about the message that they were trying to portray. That they took their time as much as they had, as much as they could, and really thought about what they wanted the writer to really experience from beginning to end. And then you put the song with the bow on top. It it really is brilliant. And like we don't say that for a lot of these attractions. And for a long time, I did not like this attraction. But I do think it is so symbolic of what Disney really is. And the aspects of Disney of what all of us fell in love with. I completely agree. Yeah, I don't think I can add anything to that. I just think it's a must ride for us Walt Disney World people. Disneyland is just the place to be. If you had to pick one other to go on, which do you think? Paris because it's the most different or to Hong Kong because it has the most characters? I guess I'm going to go with Hong Kong because I love the characters. That's, I mean, I, I just think that's fun. I think it's interesting. It gives you one more thing to look at. And we didn't even talk about that. You know, we didn't even talk about how those came into the picture or anything like that. But I just think it's fun to have them. Well, we can have a short discussion on it. Okay. We're already over an hour long. If someone's here this long, they enjoy listening <laughs> to us to some extent. I just think, you know, I don't think it messes with the purity because in 1963, they didn't have a huge number of characters to really choose from. No, I mean, they definitely didn't have the slew of characters or the, like, the cultural representation that they do now. You know, maybe they added the dolls once they recognized hey, look at all these characters from all these different places. Like, how cool would that be where kids can see their favorite characters in their, you know, their countries of origin, you know, in these different backgrounds, and they can make the connection, you know, all of these movies, all of these different settings, they're not in the same place. It's not, you know, just here, you know, look at all these other places that are being represented and how cool that is. The only one I will entertain a discussion on that it doesn't belong there, and maybe not the only one, the one that comes to mind is the Toy Story characters because they're not human. Where are they? They're in like the Western USA oh, scene. Just Woody though, right? Is I think Jesse he's on Bullseye. Okay. But there are toys. Yeah, but they're not depicted as toys. It'd be different if like someone was holding but them. But they're not dolls. 
Okay. Do you see what You're I'm saying? saying? They're like, it's not. I know it's confusing to say like toys versus dolls, but when I think, as soon as you said that, I can, I think I can picture Woody in my head. It's not like the identical style doll to where he's supposed to represent a human. He is in the more toy style art. I, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. All right. Let me throw another. I, I understand now why it's allowed. What about Hercules? What about Hercules? He's a demigod. But he's in Greece. But he's a demigod. But I teach about, well, I taught about Hercules in Greek culture. Okay. That's a big. I'm just saying he's not a human. I mean, I guess not permanently. I think you're overthinking this a little bit. They're I'm Disney just, characters. Stitch I'm is an trying. alien and he's in Hawaii. Okay. Are there aliens in Hawaii, Brendan? <laughs> I don't know. Would, I mean. Well, this get into a different. I, do you want to talk about if the existence of extraterrestrials? Because we can't. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, if you're trying to be nitpicky, I'm we just can trying be to play devil's advocate because I do know there are a lot of people who don't like the Disney characters in there. I personally don't feel that way. I was just trying to think of maybe some examples where I can meet halfway. Well, they've all met. Nope. <laughs> nope. Okay. They're off the table. Okay. We've left our uh, opinions and conjecture mostly out of this episode until the very end. Until the end. Because ultimately, we do have just good things to say Except, about the Disneyland version. Well, and I don't want to rant about this, but I, we kind of mentioned Magic Kingdom version does not capture the spirit of this ride the way that it should. I don't think. Once you get inside, maybe, but I think it really teaches us a lesson in how the queue matters. The facade matters. All of that plays into the story more than we realize. And, oh, absolutely. And again, if you've only been on the Magic Kingdom version and you love it, that's wonderful. You're going to love the Disneyland version 10 times over. I'm more speaking to the person who was like me. who's like, I can't stand this ride. This is annoying. It, it's the same thing over and over again. I think the Magic Kingdom version leaves a lot more people feeling that way than the Disneyland version does. With me or against me? No, I'm with you. But I feel like people who feel that way, we're just enamored by Disneyland because we're enamored by Disneyland. But we still thought the same thing about the actual ride. I think people feel that way because they hear the song and it gets stuck in your head or your boat gets backed up, or your kid wants to ride it 12 times. And you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of things that give people reasons to dislike. It's a small world. We're just hoping that maybe after you hear about how cool the history is and the ultimate message and the story, that you can at least have a better appreciation for it. Not that you're going to be the number one fan and you're going to want to ride it every single time you go to the park. Because that's just not the case, you know. But you can at least appreciate it, you know, without walking by with an eye roll. Maybe you're like, "Huh, that is that was kind of cool." We didn't even get a chance to talk about Small World Holiday, mainly because we haven't been on it yet. But we will do that soon. 
That'll have to be like an extra, like a special episode. Yeah, I'm saying similar to how we did for Haunted Mansion Mansion Holiday. Holiday. So stay tuned for that. What are some of your favorite facts about It's a Small World or some of your favorite parts of the history? Or what are some of your favorite scenes in there? It's also interesting you can read through and see how they expanded on different scenes based on different part, uh, different versions of this ride in different parks. Uh, like in all the other places, America, it's North America. They don't distinguish between like Canada, U.S. and Mexico. It's just North America. What? Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, so, and they expand further on Asia, for example, in some other places, showing diff- more countries in Asia. Okay. So, hope you enjoyed this episode. If you got any sense of enjoyment or entertainment or information out of this episode, we would really appreciate an iTunes review. It's absolutely the best way to help us out and help the podcast grow. It lets iTunes know that they should suggest the show to other people, and that helps us in the end. So, Hope you are off to a great start of the week. On Thursday, we will be back with a WandaVision episode, stepping a little bit out of our comfort zone, but we just need to decompress and discuss WandaVision with people other than ourselves. So with you guys. So we're super excited about it. Obviously, we're big WandaVision fans, and we hope you can join us. Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit DetourToNeverland.com. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. See you real soon.